So Jesus, standing in front of a large multitude, begins to preach the greatest sermon ever spoken. So if you listen to sermons like I do, even when I'm in the shower, I don't care what you think, that you think is the greatest sermon from whatever guy, it does not compare to the sermon that we see in the, the depth and the richness of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is on this hillside and he is speaking to a large multitude of people and yet his direct message is for those disciples. It is for those whom he has called up to this point to follow him and have truly committed in fellowship of him. He has a direct message that he has for them. And in the Beatitudes where we saw that these are the character traits or the marks of a true believer. That they're poor in spirit, that they're meek, that they are, are, are hunger and, they're hungry and they are thirsty for righteousness, that they are peacemakers. We see that the characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom of God are, are found and are approved by God. These are what lies within all believers. We've also seen that this character, living this way from our hearts, the motives of our hearts are also going to cause us great conflict. So it's interesting dichotomy or, or paradigm of people who are living humbly and peacefully and are loving people for the glory of God and through the gospel are also going to be persecuted for living that way. And then in last week we turned another corner as Jesus does in this sermon as he begins to see how this, this character in conflict is going to live out in conduct with the world how is the church or that the church is left here on the planet to provide influence into the world see the world is dark and it is decaying and god has using and left the church to influence it by preserving the darkness that means that we're keeping it at bay as we live faithfully in the gospel for the glory of god and for the good of our city it literally holds back sin, Satan, and death from achieving ground at its desired will. And so that's why it's very important for us to live as the church. We are literally preserving as salt on this earth this broken and decaying place and people. Also, the world is very dark, and yet God says that we are the light of the world. That is what he's saying, is that Jesus, or God's glory, is most shined or ex it, you know, reflected in the person and work of Jesus, and we are mere reflectors of Jesus in this world. And so where we are, there is no darkness. If we are a city set upon a hill, if we are a light that is unhidden, then we are literally broadcasting the light of the glory of God into darkness. And where that darkness is, and where the light is in that darkness, there can be no more darkness. See, knowing this... Jesus understands, though, that his primary audience at, at this stage in his ministry are Jewish. They're a Jewish group of people. And see, the Jews held such a high regard for the Old Testament. In several of our sermons that we've taught here, we've actually talked about this relationship and how that they, most of them probably had it memorized. Most of your congregation having the Old Testament memorized, or at least large sections of it. So, Imagine if you're the preacher, and I'm like I'm doing this morning, if all of you had the New Testament memorized, man, one, that's an awesome achievement. Two, man, that makes preaching really, really interesting because people really know the Word. The Old Testament, the Jews, and toward the Old Testament, we're talking about, you know, the books of Moses, we're talking about the law, we're talking about the wisdom literature, we're talking about the prophets, that all of the Old Testament was held in such high regard. They truly believed that this is the words of God. It was not mere, merely a paperweight or something that you throw in your truck to make sure that you have here on Sunday morning, but it truly was the word of God. Same God that spoke all of creation into existence is the same God that, that, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave the words to those writers. And so there it meant something. It carried much weight. 
when we're looking at this, and Jesus is knowing this, and, and Jesus can read minds by this stage in his ministry. I mean, he know, he's God. He's knowing what his listeners are thinking. I wish as a pastor I knew that sometimes, especially up here. I'd be like, stop it, right? <laughs> I could just break and pause to know what you were thinking. But Jesus knows who his context is. Jesus knows that they love the word of God. And so Jesus in his sermon kind of breaks here because he knows, again, their thoughts. And it, so he begins to answer a question that he knows that they're asking in their minds even as they listen to him. And this is what he's asking. Jesus, as our king, so they're sitting here, they're thinking, all right, if this dude is our king, if he's the Messiah, then, then what does this Jesus think about the law? What does Jesus think about the prophets? In other words, Jesus, what do you think about the scriptures? Jesus, what do you think about the Bible? In answering this question today, I believe that Jesus shows us a few things. So if you're note takers today, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to be very bad this today, all right? In answering this question, I think in this passage, Jesus is going to tell us that what is the priority of the scripture and, uh, and what is the point of the scripture and so if Jesus has a priority of Scripture, if he has a point of Scripture, then how do we as believers respond to those truths? So Jesus, how do, how do you think about the Old Testament? What do you believe about the words of Moses? What do you think about the prophet Malachi or Isaiah and these words that have been spoken? Because there was a small sect of Judaism that believed that whenever the new king came, whenever the true Messiah came, he was just going to toss out all of the Old Testament. And so Jesus, are you that kind of king? Are you that Messiah, or is there something else for us? So point number one this morning, what is the priority of the word to Jesus? What is the priority of the word to Jesus? Verse 17, read with me. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've, come, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So when we look at this statement immediately, for you guys that are wordsmiths, that term abolish there literally means to destroy a building. It's like to deconstruct something. So Jesus is saying, do not think that I've come to destroy, to lay flat the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy those things, but I have come to fulfill them. See, on contrary to what many of them may have been thinking or were now going to be thinking, again, they held such a high view of the Old Testament, Jesus steps into the scene and is going to immediately clarify what he thinks about the Holy Scripture. And he tells us immediately, I am not here to destroy it, but I am here to fulfill it. See, the Old Testament was and is the word of God. However, the Jews over the years had, had really deceived themselves in its interpretation and how they were applying it to their lives. I've said this over and over and over over the last several months, but I cannot express to you deeply enough. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, were all about external works. If you want to be approved by God, you must do something externally, some sort of work. But isn't that how we function? I will love you as long as you first show me how you're going to love me. Doesn't that make it a lot easier? All right? When somebody does these nice things for me, what do I do? I approve them. When people are not being nice to me, I dis approve them. This was the Jewish mindset of these early believers and, and, and the audience. They are thinking, man, God approves us when I do these certain activities. They were all about and only about external works. They were a hyper legalist. They believed that God was only concerned, again, with what they did. One's heart and motives behind their work meant absolutely nothing. All that God required 
was that publicly you did these things and you were approved. For illustration, let's just say for a moment that you saw a hungry person, somebody that was starving. They needed food, but you hate them. Your real thoughts, all right? In the South, again, as we've talked about, you smile, you think in your mind, bless your heart, bless their hearts, right? You cannot stand these people. However, that is the motive of your heart, but then you give them food, even though you hate them. God approves you. It doesn't matter that you hate them. It doesn't matter that you dislike them. What matters and what God is ultimately seeing is the action. That's the way that the Jewish mentality was. They didn't care about your heart. They didn't care about what you were really thinking. They did not care about the motives. They just cared that you did this. And if you did this, God saw that activity, and you were then saved. You were approved. You enter the kingdom of heaven. All right? So when they looked at the Old Testament because they wanted to be hyper good or, or be really good at following God's law, they, they begin to cause all sorts of issues and actually add hundreds, if not thousands, of, of more subheadings to God's laws or more ways to live out what God had said. For instance, the Sabbath. The Sabbath, one of the Ten Commandments is, is what? We're, we're to keep the Sabbath holy, right? We are, it's customary to say you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So, again, because we like to overthink things, the people, the Jewish people in the Old Testament begin to wonder, well, what is work? What does that mean? Not just something you're getting paid for, but let's say that I mow my grass on a Saturday. Or, or for them, it would have been Friday night through Saturday night. That's their traditional Sabbath. If, if, if I'm to mow my grass on Sunday, which we call our Sabbath, is that work? And so literally, the think tank, we have to have people decide what does it mean to then work. And so they created a definition of work that is this. Work means Carrying a burden. What's the question? What's a burden? And so literally, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders determine that a burden is equivalent to the weight of a dried fig. So imagine in your moment, you got a dried cherry in your hand. A burden or work, you can't do anything that would mean that you are carrying or, or lifting a heavier weight on the Sabbath than a dried fig. All right? So imagine how this plays out. In, in Judaism, this really began to be very interesting. So on the Sabbath, if it's late at night and I have a candle in this room... Can I pick up that candle, take it to my bedroom to have light in my bedroom on the Sabbath? I can't, because a candle weighs more than a dried piece of fruit. They had another question. It was, it was um, can a tailor who works with needles and thread, can he walk out of his house, even if he doesn't mean to, with a needle stuck into his clothing, because a Needle weighs more than the dried piece of fruit, so it constitutes work. That makes him unholy. Back in the 80s, I don't know if ladies do this very much, but my mom used to have this whole collection of brooches, right? Little pins that you would wear, and that's mama every Sunday. She'd put on our Sunday go to meet and clothes, and there was some brassy, gold-looking thing, pin, that she would put on her chest or her lapel right there and then she would go to church anybody remember those days all right so literally these are true examples they began to have these debates can a woman wear a brooch on the sabbath because 
the brooch is heavier than a dried piece of fruit, which means she's carrying a burden wherever she goes, which means she's working. You see how ridiculous this gets? And by the time that Jesus comes on the scene, this is how people are living. And and they're priding themselves, especially the Pharisees, who are living this up to the nth degree. Those who are really obeying these extensions of God's law. Even to the question, on the Sabbath, can, can Pastor Justin pick up Nora? Does she weigh more than a piece of dried fruit? Yes, all right? It doesn't take Sesame Street to realize one of these things is not like the other, all right? Uh, it's, you could quickly realize Nora weighs more than a piece of dry food, but a dad can't even pick up their child on the Sabbath. What was the original law? Have a day of rest. Have a season of rest. But you see how legalism and religiosity and external activity began to outweigh what God originally intended to happen and this is who jesus is speaking says so when jesus is speaking he says no here's the reality i've not come to abolish god's original law but i have come as messiah as king to fulfill it to fulfill it these are my words this is the truth of my life this is how It's going to take place. So how does he do that? Well, he tells us here in this passage in verse 17 that there is the law and there is the prophets, right? And so he establishes, even in the Old Testament, this idea of the Old Testament law. And in all of the Old Testament, you will quickly realize, or if you study the Old Testament, there are kind of three ideas of law here. There is the moral law. These are established in the Ten Commandments. This is for all of humanity. All of humanity should be doing these things, all right? Don't kill, don't steal, don't covet your neighbor's wife, land, or any of those things. And this is for everyone to follow, even for the New Testament Christians, except for one of them. Does anybody know what it is? It's the Sabbath. Why is the Sabbath commandment the only one that Jesus tells us that we don't obey? Because he is our Sabbath rest. So when Jesus says, man, I've not come to destroy it, but I have come to fulfill it. I will worship God above all other things. Um, I will not covet. I will not murder. I will not steal. And ultimately, you will find ultimate rest and peace from all these things only in me. So Sabbath is no longer a day of the week. We could gather on Tuesday morning if we wanted to. Sabbath is no longer a day of the week, but Sabbath is a person, and his name is Jesus. Also in the Old Testament, we see a civil and judicial law. This is exactly or only for the Israelites. These were how the Israelites are supposed to govern and to judge themselves. And yet Jesus declares in the fulfillment of these truths that he is what? The perfect judge. He is the perfect king. He never makes a mistake in the judicial system. I mean, even our system can make mistakes. And yet Jesus is saying, I'm not come to get rid of that. I have come to fulfill it. And how do I fulfill it? I am the true and better judge. But also for Jesus, he is the innocent one who is also persecuted. And yet, he remains truthful. Jesus also came to fulfill what is called the the ceremonial law. This is the sacrificial system. If you have studied any of the Old Testament, you will quickly find out and see that there is uh, this whole system that God placed or put into place that was to foreshadow or to be a type pointing toward the future Messiah. If you remember these things, this is the the killing of the lambs, the slaying of the blood, and it to be poured upon the mercy seat seat for what? For the covering of the sins of the people. By the time that we get 
to Jesus and the Passover. This week, we call it Holy Week, and we begin to look towards, specifically on Friday, the cross of Jesus. And then next Sunday, we call Resurrection Sunday. As we begin to look towards those things, this is the Passover week, and it's believed probably by by Friday, up to 200 and something thousand lambs have been killed in Jerusalem on that day. For the covering of their sins. See, so everything is pointing towards Jesus. The sacrificial system, as Jesus is hanging upon the cross, all of these lambs, and it's even believed by some that at at a certain time, that's when the, the lambs were killed. We're talking about a city now flowing with blood simultaneously in the temple as as lambs are being slain for the covering of the sin. Behold, the Lamb of God is doing what? He is dying upon the cross. And what happens in the temple? The veil is ripped in half. We, we no longer need the ceremonial system. Aren't you so glad this morning that it didn't bring in a lamb? All right, Andrew, you're the intern, so you have to get on all fours, and I'm about to kill this lamb on you, right? Welcome to ministry. I mean, aren't, aren't you glad this morning that we aren't killing animals. But do you know why we do not have to kill animals anymore for the covering of our sins? Because the ultimate lamb, what God required, he fulfilled in Jesus. So he's not abolishing it. He's doing exactly what it ultimately required. He lays down his life. So how does Jesus respond to the law? He fulfills every requirement, whether that is moral, whether that is judicial, whether that is ceremonial. How does Jesus look at the prophets? Prophets were messengers of God. So whenever you hear somebody say, well, I'm a prophet, that doesn't mean they necessarily know the future. Okay, prophets weren't always foretelling of something in the future. Sometimes they were telling you something from God right now. So how does God view those pieces of Scripture? How does Jesus view those pieces of Scripture? Prophecy, again, is a message from God. It is, it is not something that is, is necessarily happening in the future, though sometimes it happens. Look at verse 18. Jesus says this, For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus is now speaking into this idea of of prophecy, because again, a large number of the prophecies are foretelling of something. Even the Old Testament prophecies, they're foretelling of something. And ultimately, they are foretelling something about Jesus. He uses these really interesting words here. He uses the word iota and dot. This is why it's so important for us to really study, or one of the reasons why it's really important for us to study scripture. I've got a a slide I'm going to help us learn some Hebrew this morning that will help this come to life hopefully, all right? Like that? All right, so this idea of iota is in Hebrew the word yod. It's a letter, actually, the word yod. It's this little mark. It looks like an apostrophe, okay? That is a yod. Out of all the letters in the Hebrew, Jesus is saying there will not be one small yod, one little apostrophe, one little letter there in all of the Old Testament that will not be fulfilled. Whether in the life that I am currently living on this earth or in the, the, the return of myself to come and get my bride, I am going to take care of business. The second thing that he says is, is there's not also a dot that will pass. If you look at this idea, a tittle is also a dot, is it's this little flag that comes up, that little horn. You can kind of see it right here. So we have the apostrophe, that's the, the, the yod, right? We have this, this little, just the little curve in the top of that letter. That is all, just that that little slight 
movement of the pen to separate a letter from another letter. And so what is Jesus saying in this? I mean, he is, he is saying, man, there are 66,000 at least yodes in the Old Testament. And, and we have these other little small marks. I mean, just thinking about your writing here, that we're talking about, you know, crossing uh, the letter I and putting a dot on it. That every one of those in the Scriptures... Every little piece of the Old Testament is going to be fulfilled. There are not contradictions. It is the infallible Word of God, even down to the very mere brushstrokes in the calligraphy of the writings of these words are sovereignly put there by the hands of God. Now, I don't know, I just nerded out on you. So some of you wake up, we're at church, but we need to understand the beauty of what Jesus is saying. It really is the word of God. Even the insignificant things that we think are there. And this should encourage us to, to study God's word. I mean, maybe even study God's word in its original language. To be able to see, and this is the writing there, I come to fulfill the law. That is that. And, and look at the yodes, look at the, the tittles, and Jesus is saying, I fulfill every one of those words. See, throughout the gospel, Jesus will often be quoted as saying, it is written. All right, if you ever read the scripture, have you noticed that? Jesus would say, it is written. The gospel of Matthew, what have we talked about since the very kickoff of this sermon series? That over and over again, Matthew uses Old Testament scripture to point to who? To point to Jesus. And so in the actual statement, every time that you read when Jesus says it is written, I want you to know what it says. Literally in the Greek language, it means this. It is written. 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 It has always been written. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God, and so Jesus is saying the word, the word, the word, the word, it is written, it is written, it is continuing, it has always been written. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, he says this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus did not see the law as bad. A lot of times as, um, you know, Gentile Christians will look at the law and say, man, I don't have anything to do with that. We struggle to read the Old Testament. And yet Jesus is saying, man, I, I do not see the law as bad. What does Jesus know that they don't know? He wrote it. See, the law isn't bad. The law is perfect. And Jesus wrote it. God wrote it. And so he's not saying, man, these things aren't bad. I am the author of it. He saw it in all of its magnitude. He saw it in the revelation of who God is. It was is not something, or he was not something that he needed to destroy, but it was something that all pointed to him and that he fulfilled in every way. Hundreds of prophecies in the scripture that Jesus fulfilled. Not only is this true, but it will be done. And how does Jesus say it will be done? Through me. Like, I'm going to do it. Imagine never wanting what somebody else has. Anybody ever broke that one? You deserve hell. Just clue you in. Anybody ever lusted after something anybody ever broke this commandment anybody ever stole anything and jesus is saying man i wrote these to point you toward me you need somebody to complete these perfectly and i have done it my name is jesus and you will only be approved through this king we should not destroy these things we should read these things and every time we realize that we have broken them and broken them completely we can place our faith and our trust upon the person and work of jesus to realize that he has faithfully been obedient to every one of them we don't place our faith in somebody who kind of did a good job. 
See, we like to compare our faithfulness to each other's, right? Oh, I'm better than them. If we have a, a Christianity scale, you become my standard, right? You become my standard, and that's wrong. Jesus is our standard. We need to be careful about just simply asking somebody what they would do in a situation before we first come to Jesus and say, man, what would Jesus do in this situation? Because that is our ultimate standard of holiness. Not each other, but Jesus. Jesus. Him. Jesus hangs upon the cross, and what does he declare? And it is finished, it is finished, it is finished, it is finish number two what is the point of scripture what is the point of scripture let's read 17 and 18 again do not think that i've come to abolish the law or the prophets i have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them for truly i say to you until heaven and the earth pass away not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished so what is jesus's point then if he wrote it if it has a priority for him, then what is its point? When Jesus said these statements, again, I have not come to abolish it, to fulfill it. There must have been a gasp on the side of that hill that day. Jesus is, is speaking into his own, what, perfection. There's not, a, not a, there's not a perfect person sitting on that hillside that day, and yet Jesus is saying, he's declaring already that what? I am him. I am perfect. Who can be perfect? Only God. Jesus is already making a statement here in, in the, on the side of this hill that he is God, that he is fulfilling these truths. Jesus is saying, I have not come um, to, to, I've come to, fulfill the old testament not to abolish it i am the author and i am its finisher everything in scripture points to me everything i required when i wrote it i will do every slight mark of the pen stroke every period every letter even the parts that you and i don't understand is put there perfectly and sovereignly by the hands of God in the person and work of Jesus. And he declares on the side of the hill that day that he will do it all. Every bit of it. Like we have said, Matthew is illustrating this in his gospel. That's why he's constantly using and quoting Old Testament scripture as he wants his Jewish readers to understand all of it points toward Jesus Jesus would say this in the Gospel of John, John chapter 5, verse 39. He's speaking to the Pharisees. They really know the word. They've got it memorized, the Old Testament. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life. And it, it is they that bear witness about me. You search the scriptures because you think in them you will have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. So Jesus is saying to a bunch of guys who are way smarter than all of us in this room that have it, it memorized and they are, they are living it out to the best of their degree, even all of these extra rulings that they have placed upon it. And Jesus tells them, hey, you're searching this scripture and you're trying to find the meaning of eternal life, but I want you to know all of that Old Testament your most prized possession as a Jewish person is that word. And I want you to know, readers, listeners, it is all about me. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 45 say this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Jesus is saying this at his ascension. That everything written about me... In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. See, Jesus is declaring, he's declaring what? Man, all of this is about 
me, all of things, everything from Genesis to Revelation, it is all pointing towards Jesus. It is pointing toward Him. For instance, listen to this quickly. In Genesis, Jesus is the the creator and the promised redeemer. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is the high priest. In Numbers, he's the water in the desert. In Deuteronomy, he becomes the curse for us. In Joshua, he's the commander of the army of the Lord. In Judges, he delivers us from injustice. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In 1 Samuel, he's all in one. He's the prophet, priest, and king. 2 Samuel, he's the king of grace and love. In 1 Kings, he is the powerful, excuse me, a ruler greater than Solomon. In 2 Kings, he's the powerful prophet. In 1 Chronicles, the son of David that is coming to rule. 2 Chronicles, the king who reigns eternally. In Ezra, Jesus is the priest proclaiming freedom. In Nehemiah, he is the one who restores what is broken down. In Esther, he's the protector of his people. In Job, he's the mediator between God and man. In Psalms, he is our song in the morning and in the night. In the Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, our meaning for life. In Song of Solomon, and the author of the faithful love, in Isaiah, the suffering servant, in Jer- Jeremiah, the weeping Messiah, in Lamentations, he assumes God's wrath for us, in Ezekiel, he is the son of man, in Daniel, the, the fourth man in the fiery furnace, in Hosea, Jesus is the faithful husband, even when we run away, in Joel, he is the sending his spirit to his people. In Amos, he delivers justice to the oppressed. In Obadiah, he judged of those who do evil. In Jonah, the greatest missionary. In Micah, he cast our sin in the sea of forgetfulness. In Nahum, he proclaims future world peace we cannot even imagine. In Habakkuk, he crushes injustice. In Zephaniah, he's the warrior who saves. In Haggai, he prophesies a Messiah pierced for us. In Malachi, he's the son of righteousness who brings healing. In Matthew, Jesus is the king. In Mark, Jesus is the servant. In Luke, Jesus is the deliverer. In John, Jesus, the God in the flesh. In Acts, he is the spirit who dwells in his people. In Romans, the righteousness of God. In 1 Corinthians, he's the power and the love of God. In 2 Corinthians, he is the down payment of what's to come. In Galatians, he is our very life. In Ephesians, he's the unity of the church. In Philippians, he is the joy of our life. In Colossians, um, he holds the supreme position in all things. In 1 Thessalonians, our comfort in the last days. In 2 Thessalonians, our returning king. In 1 Timothy, he is the, the savior of the worst sinners. In 2 Timothy, he is the leader of leaders. In Titus, he is the foundation of truth. Of Philemon, he is our mediator. In Hebrews, he is our high priest. In James, he matures our faith. In 1 Peter, our hope in times of suffering. In 2 Peter, the one who guards us from false teaching. First John, source of all fellowship. Second John, Jesus is God in the flesh. Third John, Jesus, the source of all truth. In Jude, he protects us from stumbling. In Revelation, he is the triumph king of kings, Lord of lords, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is coming again and the one who makes all things new. The Bible is about Jesus. He declares, man, it is all about me. Even all this, all this, all this weird images and pictures that are there. Every book, every letter that is written, all of these historical documents are all pointing toward me, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I am him. Jesus. That's his name. That's his name. So we must, in turn then, how do we respond to these truths? How do we respond if Jesus has a priority, and it is high priority on his list? If Jesus' point is what? It is all about me. Then we, brothers and sisters in Christ, must in turn have a true response. Number one. A priority of Scripture produces intimacy with Jesus. A priority of Scripture for us as individuals, as the church, produces intimacy with Jesus. We are not simply engaging in some sort of textbook. 
But we are engaging in a person. How do we know this person? I mean, how do we know Jesus' personality? How do we know his, his character? How do we know how Jesus lives? If you truly want to know someone, Adam and Eve, the Bible tells us that when, when, when Adam knew Eve, she conceived a child. It's a, it's, a, it's a framework of sexual intimacy between two partners. We are to know God. We are to know Jesus. It's a reference of intimacy we are to know him how do we know him ladies and gentlemen brothers and sisters then we make scripture a priority in our lives and in doing so not reading it as a textbook not not reading it as as some sort of you know check in the box or or some sort of fortune cookie or you're having a bad day so you close your eyes you open it up point to a scripture and maybe God's sovereign even in that I don't know so I, even if you don't read the Bible still do that just realize it's not a fortune cookie it is not it is not a horoscope these are the words of God. And what do we see? These words reveal Jesus. The Pharisees were all about external works, but what is Jesus after? Your hearts, my heart, our motivation. We're not just after surface level Christianity. Jesus is after everything. Even when you're not pursuing him, he is pursuing you. See, we can fool each other in Christendom, can't we? I mean, if you wear enough really lame Christian t-shirts and, and drink out of a coffee mug that has like, I know the plans that I have for your life, right? If we learn enough Christian ease to speak the lingo and do all of these external works, man, we will celebrate you in Christendom, won't you? And we'll give you a platform. We'll ask you to write a book. And we'll ask you, man, stand up. We'll, again, model ourselves after this brother or this sister. We will, we will raise you up if you have external activity as a Christian celebrity. But ladies and gentlemen, may you realize, even while you are attending here this morning, you may have us fooled, but God will not be mocked. He knows the intention of your heart. He knows the motivation of our hearts. Man, as a, as a pastor and a minister of God's word, I want you to know I live in constant fear of doing ministry for my own glory. I live in constant fear. I wake up every day, Lord, help me not to screw this up. Help me to have a healthy fear. Somebody asked, you know, uh, Billy Graham one time, they're like, have you made it all of these years and, and, and been faithful to your wife and zero scandals and all these sorts of things? And he's like, wake up, I live scared, young man. I live scared. I live scared that I'm going to make this about me. That I'm going to be, it's all for my glory and my goodness instead of the goodness and the glory of God. Because, man, I'm telling you, my natural tendency is to be goody-goody. My natural tendency is to check the box. My natural tendency is to want you to like me, to want you to think highly of me. But if I do those things just to get the approval of others, and yet my heart is rotten and it is about me, then I want you to know that God knows my heart. And God is after that. Will a true heart for Jesus have external actions? Yes. It does. But it all begins on the inside. Us having a priority of Scripture. Why? Because we really want to know the sweetness of Jesus. We really want to know the character of God. So that's the way we don't even say dumb statements about God that aren't found in Scripture. Because we know the God of Scripture. It is a painting that He is unveiling for us and the deeper we struggle the more beautiful Jesus becomes to us in Romans chapter 15 verse 4 it says whatever is written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope Hebrews 4 12 for the word of God is a living and active sharper than the two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of the joints and of the marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, uh, competent, equipped, equipped for every good work. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Until I come, this is Paul telling his young protege, Until I come to visit you, devote yourself to what? The public teach, reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, a little bit earlier, he says this, For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a servant, a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Mission Church, we as your pastors pray that those would be the desires of our hearts. That we would want to have intimacy with God. And how to, again, how do we make it a priority? How do we gain intimacy with God? Then we study and live out His Word. That it is a true desire of our hearts. And Mission Church, man, I, my prayer for us, for me, for you, is that we would learn to love, to feast on the Scriptures. To feast upon them. Not merely on a Sunday morning, but every day of our lives. That, that truly we would hunger and thirst to know Jesus. How do we know him? Is through his word and knowing his word so that we live every day waking up going, I want more, 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 I want more. Lord Jesus, I want more of you. I want more of your word. I want to be hungry. I want to forget to eat earthly meals because I'm so consumed with consuming your word and building intimacy with you, Jesus. That is what we desire. That is what we want. Not how quickly can we get through this. Not how quickly can the preacher preach. Not how quickly can we get through a devotional question. No, no not how quickly can this MC kind of wrap up. I got things to do and TV to watch. I want you to know there is nothing more important for you to do with your time each and every day than on Sundays to gather with these believers for the teaching of God's word. To gather on an MC during the week, but every day, ladies and gentlemen that you are partaking in the words of God. We have too many American Christians that are claiming intimacy with Jesus and they do not know the word. That is scary. More than the meal after church. More than the meal of this gathering. Feasting on God's word. Man, I pray for the day when we, when we are so excited about who Jesus is and knowing his word, that maybe instead of going out to eat, that we go, hey, let's continue this. We're, we're, we're going to, to Mike and Cynthia's to continue, and we just sit around, and, and we're continuing to dive in this because we want to know it, where we lose all sense of time and sensibility because we are, are joining in, in laughter in, in sadness, in tears, in joy at the reading of God's word because it is like he is literally there. Because let me clue you into something. He is. Jesus is there. Jesus is in those words. He is in those pages. He's saying, hey, you want to know something else about me? Because when you know this, when you know things like weird words like yod and tittle. See, you think that's insignificant. No. That is great significant about what Jesus is declaring about himself. He is saying these things, and they are true. Mission Church, we believe that Jesus is our king. Our constitution was not written by a bunch of old dudes wearing fake hair. Our constitution is written by Jesus, the Son of God. Our American Constitution is way somewhere down on the list. Your citizenship 
is not found primarily in the United States of America. It is found in the person and work of Jesus. It is found in his kingdom. And so the way that Jesus views things, the way that Jesus paints it out, we should live very differently than the world around us because he is our authority. His word is our constitution. Our citizenship is in heaven, not ultimately in this country. This is the perspective. This is our lives. It's hard to get bored listening to a sermon when Jesus is your everything. It's hard to get bored in a Bible study. I know you fight it. I fight it. But realizing that and continuing to walk in repentance and confession, Lord Jesus, help me. Lord Jesus, help me. Lord Jesus, even, I, I used to hear people say, well, I'm, just, I'm not going to. We, we think this is humility. We'll say things like, well, I don't know what that passage means, and I'm just never going to know what that means. You know what that actually is? It sounds like humility, but it's false humility. It's arrogance. True humility goes, you know, I don't understand this, but by the grace of God, I'm going to pursue it. And if I have to pursue it for the rest of my life because I want to know Jesus, I am still learning out things about my wife. We've been together 17 years. What if I just imagine, ah, I don't want to know anymore. How's it going to work? It's not, but it's a pursuit. And, and I'm finally going to get an amen out of these men in this room. Do you understand women? Thank you, Pastor Justin. I appreciate you being, I appreciate the sport and feel like somebody's with me here this morning, all right? The truth is, we don't. Yet I still pursue, and it is a mystery, Okay? You are an unsolved mystery, females are. I do not get you, but I pursue this truth. I want to know my wife in, in a much greater way. Man, there are many mysteries inside of Scripture, but Lord, help us to pursue those, even if I'm uh, an old, old man still wrestling with the same text. God, reveal yourself to me. Reveal yourself to me. Reveal yourself to me. See, whenever people think that the Bible is a joke or foolishness and stupid, we support their view every time if we don't take time to study and to know it and to know Jesus and to live it. We give them credence to their beliefs every time. See, I often hear, well, knowing the Bible is for seminary professors, pastors, and Bible study teachers. Well, that, that really screws up your train of thinking if you read the Bible because these were peasant fishermen. They were prostitutes. They were tax collectors. And we didn't have seminaries then. We didn't have pastors. We, we do later in the, in the New Testament. But we didn't have this school that we went to to learn these things. They were just normal Joes and gals who loved Jesus. And in loving Jesus, they knew the best way to know him. The, the scripture I read it earlier, when Jesus was ascending, they began to see what? The Old Testament in brand new light. Why? Because it all pointed toward him. This love letter is all about Jesus. And if you're all about Jesus, then you're going to be all about his word. The second response is this. Since Jesus is the point of scripture, scripture drives our practice. Since Jesus is the point of scripture, scripture drives our practice practice you know in a lot of christian circles i'm about to cuss so forgive me here's the cuss word doctrine i don't know how many times when you start talking about doctrine doctrinal issues when you throw out the other cuss word it's little friend theology doctrine and theology those are Christian cuss words for a lot of Christian circles. Those are they're words that we kind of, we want to stand back from those words. Again, those were for the nerds that, you know, underneath their dress shirts are wearing Star Wars shirts. Okay, I mean, those are for guys like Pastor Eric, Pastor Justin. That's for a few of our people. Those are, uh, again, doctrine and theology. I don't want to learn doctrine. I, I don't want to learn theology. Those, those are really... I just don't want to put the time into that, you know, 
my television show is coming on, I got this on DVR, I, I don't want to really know the doctrines or the history of Christianity, I don't, I don't want to know those things. I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that is deception from the enemy. It is not merely for the pastor, pastors. It's not simply for the Bible study teacher, but man, it should be the desire of every one of our hearts because of this. Sound doctrine drives emotions and applications. Get it? Doctrine and theology are the drivers of how you should respond emotionally and with application. If you do not know theology, if you do not know doctrine, then, then we cannot correctly worship Jesus because we do not know him. Doctrine and true theology should drive your emotions even. It should drive our application. We must move away from this in our circles, from I think, I think, I think, I think, I think, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel, to this. Scripture says, Scripture says, Scripture says. The cycle we see in Scripture is doctrine first, then application. Jesus does it here in the Sermon on the Mount. What are the Beatitudes? Doctrine. Theology. Who he is, who you are. Who he is, who you are. That is the Beatitude. That's where Jesus starts out. Man, I'm going after the heart here. The heart is found in doctrine. The heart is found in theology. If you want to know me things, search and know that they are rich and filled with joy. That they point toward me. Paul would even tell his followers and his listeners, man, seek sound doctrine. That this should be the desire of those who are Christians, who are involved in the church, is to know God through his word. Not to be scared of, of, of doctrine and theology, but everything that you do, your external activity must be filled by a heart that is sound in doctrine and theology. But, but here's what becomes popular in Christianity. It's to be driven by your emotions. And this is, this is scary. This is the warning this morning. This is the warning. This was talking to our interns this week. I'm like, man, you guys can sing all the songs you want, but if you don't know God's word, you have no idea what you're singing about. You have no idea. Man, we just want to come to church to have some sort of emotional experience. We want to come to church to get you know, some sort of application. I'm having trouble with my kids. Give me three points to better discipline my kids. Four points to save my marriage. Five ways to, to save more money. This gathering and the public reading of Scripture is all about God. It is all about the truth of God. How is that revealed through doctrine, through theology, through the study of Scripture? And that then changes our emotions. It changes our application. It puts us in, in right understanding of who God is, who I am, and then I can live this out. It is scary to live in a culture where feeling and application determine our doctrine. Well, I, that just doesn't feel right. So it must not be right. Right? Well, I just feel like this should be able to happen in church. Now, I know that Scripture says this, but that just, that just doesn't feel right. I'll be in conversations all the time with people. They'll be even asking me, me thoughts on, on different things like that, and I'll say, well, I, I, I would say this because this is what Scripture says. I don't believe that. Are you a Christian? Don't, don't you have to? Or did he get that one wrong? If we're not centered on Jesus and live our lives accordingly, then what is Christianity about? Man, Scripture is a priority for Jesus. The point of Scripture is Jesus. What is our response? Man, to make it a priority for us and make it the point for us. Is this going to be a struggle? Yes. But what is our great hope? As we, as we 
kind of land this thing as we begin to now turn our attention in worshiping and reflecting on these truths in the morning? What is our great hope? Because I don't know about you, if you haven't heard me, and just I hope you feel like I'm not just coming after you. This is, this is for us. I am majorly imperfect in this. But what have we seen? What is our great hope? What is Jesus telling his listeners? It's fulfilled in me. Isn't that good news? It's fulfilled in me. You know who's in the Word every day? Jesus! You know who knows every doctrinal truth backwards, forwards? Jesus! You know who lives it out obediently in every perfect way? Jesus! Jesus did not come to provide a possibility for people to be saved. Did you know that? It's not a deal. It's not a possibility. I'm going to come, I'm going to live, I'm going to die, I'm going to be resurrected as a possibility for some people to be saved. That is not what Jesus says, ladies and gentlemen. Sound doctrine tells us that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to save sinners, and that is what he does, and that is how he does it. He gives his life to it perfectly. So when I'm inconsistent in my quiet times, when, when I'm going through the motions and my, my heart is wretched and my motive is lost, I lean upon, we lean upon church even more, the perfect work, the perfect heart of Jesus and his righteousness. That is good news for us today. So don't leave here not being gospeled. The gospel is admitting that you're wrong, that you're failing, that you're struggling, but that your hope is in Jesus for a greater truth and a greater tomorrow. May we at Mission Church be people of His Word. I love you. I love pastoring you. May we grow in Him. May we grow in our knowledge of Him. May it not be an external working. May it be the joy of our hearts to know Jesus and to know him well. Let's pray.